Welcome to All Sides with Anna Staver. I'm Mike Thompson sitting in for Anna today. More than three and a half years after former House Speaker Larry Householder and others were indicted for accepting bribes, the people accused of issuing those bribes now face criminal charges. It is the state of Ohio that has charged former First Energy executives Chuck Jones and Mike Dowling with bribing former Public Utilities Commission Chairman Sam Randazzo. Randazzo now faces state and federal charges in this case. Governor Mike DeWine, he appointed Randazzo as PUCO chair shortly after prosecutors say First Energy paid Rendazzo a $4.3 million bribe. DeWine says he knew nothing of that payment, but he says he now regrets appointing Rendazzo. I've said that if I knew that piece of information, we would not have appointed him if we knew that, that amount of money. Rendazzo says that money was not a bribe. Also, that's what the executives say. They say it was payment for consulting services, and all three men deny the charges. That is topic one of our weekly reporter roundtable. Joining us this morning, Cleveland.com State House reporter Jake Zuckerman. Welcome back, Jake. Thank you for having me on. Uh, Daryl Rowland, politics and investigative reporter for ABC6. Welcome back, Daryl. Thank you, Mike. It's great to see you. And Jesse Balbert, state government reporter with the USA Today Network Ohio Bureau. Welcome back, Jesse. Happy Monday. We're back to talking about First Energy and House Bill 6. Yes, and it's partly your fault because you've written a couple of good stories the past couple of days. And uh, uh, if you haven't checked them out the, the, uh, in the dispatch here locally, uh, Jesse and Laura Bischoff wrote a great summary of who knew what, when, sort of, uh, last Friday. And then today, a story about uh, side deals. We'll get to those in a moment. And... Um, but first, the, the big story is, you know, it's been a long time. Larry Householder and the other folks were indicted in the summer of 2020. It is now the, nearly the spring of 2024. And now the bribers are facing charges. Jesse, this was we've been waiting for this to see what would happen. How can you how can you accept a bribe? without having somebody on the other side who has issued the bribe. And now the state says the first energy executives did just that. Correct. That's really been the question since, like you said, mid-2020. We've had the individuals who are accused of taking the bribes. We've had even uh, the company, Akron-based First Energy. Um, they signed a deferred prosecution agreement in 2021 saying that they bribed both Larry Householder and Sam Randazzo, who was this uh, top utility regulator. And so, but we really didn't have anything on the other side. Uh, the federal government, which has really led the criminal charges to this point, has not charged anyone from First Energy, like an individual, a former executive, or from Energy Harbor, which is the new name of the owners of the nuclear plants. Mm -hmm. And so uh, Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost last Monday said that, you know, these are the people that need to be held accountable in this particular scandal as well. Mm -hmm. Jake, it seemed like for a long time the PUCO was just doing an investigation. The state government was doing an investigation. They're all sort of waiting for the feds to wrap up their investigation. But to me, it seems like the state maybe said, you know, we got to we got to charge now. I don't know what the statute of limitations provision is with state charges. I know the federal charges they're bumping up against a, a deadline. But what took what has taken so long for the for the bribers, alleged bribers to be charged? Yeah, I mean, that's that's the sixty four million dollar question right there. You know, I think that there you mentioned the statute of limitations. That's an interesting question. You know, there are different factors that can toll and extend that outward. But we don't know what's going on behind the scenes at the U.S. attorney's office. But meanwhile, 
House Bill 6 had coal bailouts in it that we are still paying every month. The, the tab's now about $230 million. That's forecast to hit somewhere in the market of $700 million by 2030. That is, those are still very active payouts, and I think that criminal prosecutions, either politically or and or legally, make it just a little more palatable to, for consumers to get some of that money back for what is, is pretty well established to be a, a bill passed by way of bribery. Daryl Rowland, now, these indictments, not really a surprise. So there has not been any really new characters in this official investigation. Those who have been charged, those who have pled guilty, those who have been convicted and sent to prison, Larry Householder and Matt Borges, the lobbyist Matt Borges. There's no other state officials have been indicted or implicated in this other than this core group of folks. Well, depends on how you define implicated, Mike. Officially Um, charged, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, certainly not. No one's officially charged. Uh, You know, we just had the Mr. Randazzo and the two uh, former First Energy executives who I have pleaded not guilty, we Hmm. should note. Um, I was intrigued, however, um, Chuck Jones, the former head of First Energy, is represented by Carol Rendon, who's a former U.S. attorney Mm -hmm. for the Northern District of Ohio. Uh, She said, the facts necessary to understand what actually happened have not yet been made public. Now, is that defense lawyer speak, or is there really, despite all the huge documentation we've had uh, in this case, uh, Jake and Jesse and others have, have, have written about, is there really, could there really be something else out there, or is this just spin, gee, I was doing it up for the shareholders, it's not a crime? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you think, I mean, we, they had a federal trial with how many hours and hours of, of tape? Now, granted, there were probably more hours of tape we haven't heard, but and that's what Larry Householder and Neil Clark had, had said, that we'd only heard snippets. Neil Clark, of course, has, has died. Uh, but, Jesse, the, the, the man who appointed Rendazzo to the PUCO met with First Energy executives, Governor DeWine. He says he did not know of the, 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 the depth of the relationship between Rendazzo and First Energy. He knew that he had worked for them and been affiliated with them, and he... He fiercely denies that he knew about this $4.3 million payment that prosecutors say was a bribe, Randazzo said was just payment for consulting services. So you wrote about this last week, uh, how how closely DeWine was to this and how far away he was from this. Yeah, I can kind of explain a bit of a timeline and maybe that'll help people kind of decide for themselves uh, who to believe in this particular scenario. So uh, Governor Mike DeWine and Lieutenant Governor John Husa, they were elected in November of 2018. Uh, shortly after December of 2018, um, John Husted and Mike DeWine and Chuck Jones and Mr. Dowling, who we've mentioned, also a, a lobbyist who was a former uh, DeWine advisor, Josh Rubin, they got together for dinner at the Athletic Club. Mike DeWine says that the PUCO chairman didn't come up during this meeting. Uh, First Energy executives kind of chatted about this beforehand and were kind of game planning how to pitch the governor on their particular preference for PUCO chairman. Shortly after that dinner, uh, the First Energy executives went over to Sam Randazzo's um, place, which is in the kind of German village area, and they had a conversation. Shortly after that, that's when that $4.3 million was paid to Randazzo. Now, Randazzo would say that that was the end of a consulting agreement that mm-hmm. he's had for with First Energy for quite some time, kind of like a payout per se. And I believe 
you know, federal prosecutors and state prosecutors would say that that was money to continue being on uh, the payroll and do the the wishes of First Energy. And what happened afterwards when Randazzo was appointed to the PUCO is he helped craft language for this House Bill 6, which included the bailout, which included the fees that Jake referenced. Um, he was able to kind of shuttle off a rate case, which could have increased rates for First Energy. So um, basically, prosecutors would say, yeah, he was working as their agent, almost like a Trojan horse, per se, within the mm-hmm. DeWine administration. And Jake, DeWine's chief of staff at the time was, was apparently at some point learned of this payment. It also uh, she had been told of questions about Sam Rendazzo, but they claim that DeWine claims and and that she never told the governor of these concerns. Yeah, yeah, I think the timeline exercise would be helpful again here. So the governor and, you know, reporters have have really dogged him on this question for years is when did you learn about this $4 million payment? And DeWine publicly, first he said October of 2020, and then his spokesman did a round of calls to reporters and say, actually, he only learned about it in November of 2020, which is when the FBI raided Sam Randazzo's condo. And there was an explanation that Laurel Dawson, his chief of staff, had learned about it one, two, three weeks prior and didn't tell the governor because she didn't feel it was relevant. So that that was the story we had. And then this indictment drops, and it doesn't mention Laurel by name, but it does mention her job title, chief of staff. And it has her as aware of this $4 million payment in January 2019. So that's about an eight-month, 18-month difference. Now, they they say that this was a payment. You know, now the, the word bribe didn't come up until more recently when all these prosecutions came around. But even so, it's a $4 million, You know, it's a yeah. substantial amount of money going to a public official from a regulated company that that public official is responsible for overseeing and assuming the indictment is true, it shows that, if nothing else, the DeWine administration knew that Sam Randazzo received this money. And it, it raises all kinds of questions like, number one, did Laurel Dawson tell the governor, her boss, about the payment? And if she didn't, why not? Yeah. And the governor said, Daryl, that you should ask her. But, of course, you know, should she have told him? Um, and it just, it you know. I mean, that's real. I heard him say that. And it's like, now, oh, wait a minute. I mean, have you asked her? Yeah. I mean, he's now talking about how admitting to reporters just last week that, yeah, this this was a mistake. No duh. 2020 hindsight and all yeah. that. Haven't you asked her? Have you taken any sort of disciplinary action? I know she's your dearest of all aides. Uh, but have you even verbally reprimanded, you know, Laurel, you could have kept me out of trouble if you'd only let me know that. I know. I'd be a, I'd be a little annoyed if my subordinate had had withheld key information now is employed me and in at least tangentially in the, the state's largest scandal. I mean, unless it's again, let's, you know, we're going back 50 some years, Mike. Yeah. What did he know? And when did he know in terms yeah. of the governor? Now, this PUCO chairman appointment, we would just rank on governor's appointments when you come into office. I mean, you have, uh, you know, Department of Education and Workforce right. head. You have it's a pretty significant appointment. Appointment, right? This is not just some, you know, dog catcher from, you know, Western Ohio appointment. This is a big deal, right, Jesse? 
Yeah. So the PUCO, it acts as kind of a mediator on these cases between the utilities, like the electric bills and gas bills and a number of other things and other parties. So maybe companies that have to pay those bills, you and I who have to pay those bills. And they're supposed to act kind of like a judge balancing the interests of all of those individuals. And the chairman of this commission has tremendous power and often kind of sets the course and the direction. And you kind of saw that playing out with Randazzo. A lot of these decisions that he made were either unanimous or only like minorly questioned mm-hmm. by the other commissioners on, on the PCO. Yeah. So the, the, the fact that his, DeWine claims that Randazzo's name never came up in that meeting with First Energy executives when they were, he was considering who to appoint as chair for the PUCO. There were a few people in, you know, in line for that position. It just seems, I don't know, it seems... To strain believability, that his well, name correct, would never come up. Wrong. I thought I thought he couldn't remember. That was, he uh, said to me he couldn't remember, as has John Houston, who was there. Yeah. And that's a yeah. There's, I mean, there is a little, little distinction. Yeah, when I asked him about it on Tuesday, yeah. he said he didn't believe that that came up. Mm-hmm. That the issue of the chairman or mm-hmm. Rendazzo. Yeah. So, uh, you know, this was several years ago, but given the importance of. Uh, this case and the criminal charges, you might want to yeah. rack your brain. <laughs> well, it's, and it's really important, you know, and we talk about Laurel Dawson, this former chief of staff, very loyal employee. Uh, she was obviously uh, testified before the grand jury as well. So prosecutors are also interested in this question, or so it would seem. Why else would they be calling her? So, you know, it's very tantalizing when you get the governor's former chief of staff testifying about what else? But yeah. probably this memo. And who did you tell it to? Share it with. So that's that's the nitty gritty of this case. But it just shows the power that utilities and the utility industry has in this state, and how you wrote today, Jesse, about side deals that manufacturing associations and manufacturers cut with utilities, and that the average person doesn't get. Is there any effort to reform this system after all of this? From Democrats in the form of bills that are going nowhere. So, I mean, as far as like a politically viable effort, no, there's none at all. There have been no ethics reforms. One of one of the most amazing things to me is after the Larry Householder trial, I mean, we got the, the kind of detail that reporters can only dream of. You know, we saw the text messages between executives and with politicians. We saw the bank receipts of all this money changing hands. And the principal funder of the $60 million Larry Householder got came from what's now Energy Harbor, the, the actual owners of these nuclear plants, there are still registered lobbyists. They like Ohio's ethics laws, after all this grimy underbelly we've seen, are still registered lobbyists and able to do that job, which is a remarkable thing. Do we see any reforms coming down the pike? Do, does it have to take another really, really high-profile indictment and conviction? Well, people, I mean, there are a smattering of conservative Republicans who want Democrats to bring this to the floor and, you know, yeah, let's vote on it now. Easier said than done. I, you know, part of this, I think, in my opinion, goes back to the Kasich administration when he sort of defanged the Ohio Consumers Council, as in more or less defunding or taking a lot of their funding away, which was kind of a counterweight. I mean, I wasn't there when PUCO was formed, but certainly it has turned into kind of a friend of the utilities mm-hmm. from a practical standpoint from what we've observed over recent decades. So there's now no real equal counterweight to any stretch of the imagination. The Consumer Council tries, um, 
But, boy, they, they have very little funding and very little audience. All right. When we come back, when All Sides continues, we'll look at the uh, Republican race for U.S. Senate. And Joe Manchin did a listening tour in uh, Ohio last week and apparently didn't like what he heard and decided on his political future. That's when All Sides continues on 89.7 NPR News. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, we're taking center stage. Introducing NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of Black-led stories from NPR's podcasts. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. This is all... Sides with Anna Staver. I'm Mike Thompson sitting in for Anna today. It's our weekly reporters roundtable with us, Daryl Rowland from ABC6, Jesse Balmert from the USA Today Ohio Network, and also Jake Zuckerman from Cleveland.com. Even though Ohio voters enshrined abortion rights into the Constitution last fall, the issue promises to loom large in this year's election. All three Republican candidates for U.S. Senate oppose abortion rights, but Matt Dolan and Bernie Marino say they support a federal law that would allow for abortions up to 15 weeks of a pregnancy. Frank LaRose says he supports a federal standard but has declined to be any more specific than that. And, of course, LaRose became the face of the two Issue 1 campaigns from last year, the first one in August to make it harder to change the Constitution, and the second in November to guarantee the right to an abortion in the Constitution. And LaRose, as you know, ended up on the losing sides of both of those, but he was the uh, the leading flag waver for the abortion rights opponents in those campaigns. So it comes as no surprise, I guess, that Ohio Right to Life uh, last week endorsed his bid for the Senate, but it also endorsed Bernie Marino uh, in his bid for the Senate. So, Daryl, are they is Ohio Right to Life in hoping for a tie? <laughs> um, I, I think they. Uh... They didn't want to go against either of, of their standard bearers, shall we say. Uh, they did know they didn't want Matt Dolan. He's, he's too moderate on the issue. But, yeah, it would be, obviously, former President Trump has endorsed Bernie Marino as head of a lot of conservatives nationally. Um, we're very, very pro-life advocates. Um, but Frank Rose, yeah, he's sort of, you know, like the soldier he used to be. Yeah. You know, put himself on the front lines there. Took a whole lot of bullets for yes, the cause, did. so there may be some sense. Eh, we can't just, you know, throw Frank out on the trash heap. Yeah, I, I, Mike Gonadakis, the head of Ohio Right to Life, was on Columbus on the Record, our TV show, last Friday, and I asked him that. Was it just out of loyalty that you endorsed Frank LaRose? And he said no. He said both men are, were very active in the campaign last summer and last fall, and they felt that both men are strong on the on the abortion opponent side, and they thought that they wanted to endorse both. So. Yeah, this will be a really interesting test because obviously we're after the November vote where Ohioans um, pretty resoundingly supported an abortion rights amendment. But we look back to like the last Senate race and the governor's race. 
Uh, Tim Ryan talked virtually nothing about abortion rights in his campaign as he was trying to be as moderate as possible um, against J.D. Vance and obviously lost that race. Nan Whaley talked a lot about abortion, but was in like the most uphill of uphill battles against incumbent Governor Mike DeWine. And so this next year could be interesting to see how well Sherrod Brown does tying this issue that was popular with voters to his particular campaign. It's been something that people have been willing to support on an issue basis, but like making that dotted line to a candidate has been a little more challenging. Yeah, Jake, you'd think that, I wonder if Sherrod Brown had wished that the vote on the abortion rights issue was coming up this November rather than last November, because they could run in tandem and and generate support and turnout. But so does it lose, does the abortion issue lose some steam here in Ohio because we've already resolved it more or less? I think the Democrats nationally saw that in like New York and California in 2022, where there are state protections for abortion. So it's just not the same galvanizing issue it is for Democrats in a red state of, I got to get out there and vote for my rights. Well, my votes are already protected and it's cold outside. So, um, but I, I think that what's interesting here is now there's this federal risk of, you know, maybe we could lose this new constitute, like this newly vested constitutional right by the decision of federal lawmakers. So I, I mean, it's it's pretty hard to look at the Rubik's Cube and, and know what the outcube, outcome is going to be there. You look at the language that the candidates use on this. They're they're not calling it a, a ban. You know, that the, the proposal is there would be no or very few restrictions on abortion up until 15 weeks of a pregnancy. And then after that, there'd be rape and incest and uh, health of the of the mother exceptions. So the, on the the Democrats want to call that a, a 15 week ban. Republicans say it's a federal standard. Um, it's interesting how the the, uh, the, the semantics here. Yeah, well, recall how the debate took place last week on the last year on the the two issues. It, it was almost not so much about abortion per se as extreme positions on abortion. So it's like, in theory, one step removed. Well, you may even be, you know, pro-choice, but whoa, boy, this is you know, look at this stuff. Or, you know, the other side, quote-unquote, pro-life. And you say, well, but look at the the extremity of the position here. Who really wants that? So I think that's what's going And you already see the language. That, that's become the rhetoric of the day. Yeah. Extremist positions on, and it's almost anything that, you know, you're on the other side of. Yeah, I mean, even like on Friday night, Mike Onodakis was talking about how Sherrod Brown abor- supports abortion up until the ninth month. And we should ask him about that. And that's... That's not the case. First, abortions do not happen that late. And, you know, the whole late term abortion, when that was I think that was pretty well vetted and discussed and examined last fall and voters didn't really buy it. Yeah. And there are, you know, federal restrictions on abortions later in pregnancy. Also, abortions that occur later in pregnancy, number one, are rare because most of them occur within the first trimester. But also, if they are occurring that late, it's usually for one of two reasons. One is some sort of you know, tragic medical complication that wasn't able to be detected earlier in pregnancy, or the other one is maybe a problem with access. You know, it just took that long to get an appointment or something like that. And so in both of those scenarios, I don't I don't think it's quite the talking point people think it is. Yeah. And I, I just jump in. It is a ban. I mean, no matter what kind of verbiage they think is is 
politically winning for the day, it, it's the it's a law telling you that you can't do something that you were once able to do. Of after, course, it's a ban. Well, the ban after fifteen. The weeks, ban after fifteen. Or 16 weeks. More than ninety percent of abortions happen before that point. So, it is a ban after fifteen weeks, but it's also a ban for what five or six percent of of the abortions, and and very very few abortions happen. You know, post viability, as as Jesse said. So. And none of us cover Congress, but it has been hard to get any sort of like consensus on this issue in Washington, D.C., much as it was hard to get a consensus on this issue after the Dobbs decision overturned Roe v. Wade in Ohio. So it's just a hard one to get the numbers. Yeah, we are. I think early voting starts on Wednesday, correct? Yes. So. In this primary, we've sort of snuck up on us because we were so focused on the abortion rights campaign last fall. And do we have any sense of we've had one poll that shows it's basically tied between Marino and LaRose and LaRose. I mean, uh, Marino has the Trump endorsement. Do we as voting begins, do we do we see anyone as a front runner? It's hard to tell. I mean, I think the Trump endorsement carries weight in mm-hmm. the state of Ohio. Certainly, J.D. Vance would tell you that. And so it, I think every advertisement that I've seen from Bernie Moreno has mentioned mm-hmm. endorsed by Donald Trump. He really wants to make sure that message gets out to voters. I think the last poll had something like 42 percent of voters still undecided on this issue. So it is something Republicans are going to have to kind of pick a lane on. And with the top of the ticket, the presidential uh, nominees pretty sewn up. It's this is going to be what drives people to polls if if yep. they're driven to the polls. I think Donald Trump Jr. is coming to Ohio if he hasn't come already. I think I saw a press release he was visiting. Any word on if the the former president himself will come to Ohio? I know he's kind of busy with court issues in New York and Georgia and Washington. Yeah, I've not heard anything, but you know sometimes those sort of come up yep. uh, a bolt out of the blue and. You know, he likes to balance things. Now, he did come in and endorse early in contrast to the J.D. Vance endorsement last year, which I agree, clearly put J.D. Vance in the Senate. Yeah. Um, he's been with Marino all along, so it's not like he can really equivocate on his support, but whether he will invest the capital of a personal visit and, you know, if Bernie would would somehow lose, you know, maybe take that, that bruise on his ego there. Yeah. Uh, public service announcement, if you are not registered to vote, you have a link till Tuesday, right, and then uh, tomorrow. And also, if you've moved, you want to change your voter registration and vote in the primary, you need you have until Tuesday to, to make that change. One man who is not running for U.S. Senate uh, from West Virginia is Joe Manchin. He brought his listening tour to Ohio last week. Uh, the Democrat says he is trying to figure out if there is support for a third party to counter what he calls Democrats and Republicans weaponizing of American politics. He spoke to the Cleveland City Club last Thursday morning and then scooted down, perhaps 71, maybe he flew down, I don't know, to the Columbus Metropolitan Club uh, for a noon speech. When he was questioned by Karen Kassler, he insisted at the time that uh, he was not running for president. My purpose of coming around and being here is not to propose or propel me running for any office. I said I'm not running for re-election for the U.S. Senate, and uh, I'm not out here running on any party for any other office. They said, well, there might be an opening run as a third party. That's a very, very, very difficult situation, you know, and is there ever a chance that we might be able to open up to where a third party could be more competitive? We need to examine that because the more competition, the better participation you get, and you bring more people into the process. 
And then less than 24 hours later, Daryl, Joe Manson said, you know, I'm not going to run. So did he not hear what he wanted to hear in Ohio? This was a two-month tour. He had made several stops around yeah, the country. Yeah, he'd been in the, to New Hampshire, and I think he was yet to go to Michigan. Um, yeah, like you say, he must not have uh, liked uh, testing the waters in Ohio, I guess, uh, this side of the river, it wasn't as good. I talked to him one-on-one afterwards, and although, you know, he did indeed say that, as, you know, Karen's actuality uh, said there, um, I've heard that from many candidates who are just doing the dance. They're keep, they're keeping that option open. You know, they're not nailing the door shut. And he seemed to afterwards talk about, well, by Super Tuesday, we will know for sure, mathematically, yeah. you know, it'll be Trump and Biden, and then people... It will truly sink in with people that we have the same lame old choice. And, you know, he hit some popular themes about, again, the extremes and all that. Um, I did <laughs> I did actually remind him right at the end of the interview that I had covered John Glenn back in 1984 who ran for the quote-unquote sensible center. Yes. And did not get too far because the only thing in the sensible center of the road is uh, – White stripes and dead skunks. <laughs> so I mean, when I listened to his speech, especially in Cleveland, he was very critical of uh, of Biden. I thought, well, maybe he's just trying to remain relevant in case, you know, Joe Biden drops out, Jake Zuckerman, and as a centrist Democrat, maybe he'd be in there with the, in the discussion with Gavin Newsom and uh, uh, other Democrats, uh, Kamala Harris. Should Biden decide not to run eventually? I mean, I, I saw the whole thing as bizarre. You know, first he said, I'm not running for president. But then he got asked about who his VP would be, and he gave names. Right away. And then 24 <laughs> hours later, he wasn't running for president. It's pretty hard to make sense of the whole episode. But what did come rushing back to my noggin was in 2018, when people were running, oh, is Joe Manchin going to run again in this very Trumpy state? And he did a lot of this will he, won't he dance he told the New York Times, you know, this place sucks in reference to the U.S. Senate. And that was like a big, fun, splashy headline. And then he ran again. And then a year and a half into his term, he said, well, maybe I'll run for governor in West Virginia and floated that one and batted it around and got a lot of attention and then didn't run for governor. This is this is kind of what he does. Mm-hmm. Just remaining relevant. I mean, we saw that a bit with with former Governor Kasich, you know, he he stayed in the race for a long time and then he toyed with the idea in 2020 again and went to cable television and. Right. Yeah. yeah. Or even, you know, Tim Ryan yes. in our Congressman Tim Ryan. He was whoever the great mentioner is in Ohio. He's been mentioned for the governor and earlier Senate runs and all that. He actually obviously pulled the trigger, though. He actually did it yeah. in 2022. Didn't work out so well. Yeah, uh, Joe Manchin mentioned Rob Portman would be a good running mate. And that's it. And I was glad to see that once again in this presidential cycle, Rob Portman's name comes up again because I think his name has come up every time since like 2000 at least that he would be an ideal running mate, but never gets asked. Never. So his chance is gone again, apparently, unless Trump picks him, which I doubt. (laughs) Uh, This third party thing, though, because there is a lot of dissatisfaction. I mean, the approval ratings are both Biden and Trump are pretty low for two leading contenders for the for the White House. Is there any way that a third party could ever take hold and have a, be more than just a spoiler, do you think? It's hard to see in the current system. There's just so much uh, structure and money and systems set up for a two-party system that dissatisfaction would be hard to overcome, yeah. would be my thought. 
I I don't totally buy the idea that there are two parties. I mean, like, of course, there is the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. But within them, I mean, there are there's a Joe Manchin is like hardly in the same party as Elizabeth Warren in a lot of ways. They have completely different ideas about how the government should work within the Republican Party. You know, there's this like more moderate faction of like, let's just make deals. Let's let's pass budgets. Let's get back to normal order. And then there's clearly a burn it down faction of the republic you know i mean i think that there's a lot more political diversity within the two parties and gets credit for we just talk about them as two parties yeah and the primaries and then you add in gerrymandered congressional districts not only here but around the country and the the systemic problems that that brings and and pushing candidates both to the far to the left and far to the right far to the right here in ohio uh anyway When we come back, we'll talk about East Palestine. President Biden stopped by there last week for his first time since the great uh, derailment and explosion. And uh, we'll talk about that when All Sides continues here on 89.7 NPR News. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, we're taking center stage. Introducing NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of Black-led stories from NPR's podcasts. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. This is All Sides with Anna Staver. I'm your host, Mike Thompson, filling in for Anna today. She's enjoying President's Day. We'll get to the panel asking who your favorite president is, was. We'll get to that in a moment. Anyway, some Republicans in the Ohio House continue to have a hard time getting along. They continue to fight over who controls the House GOP campaign committee, which, of course, helps Republican candidates win election, win re-election. House Speaker Jason Stevens controls that money over the opposition of his rival Republicans in the House who want control of that money. Uh, Last week, a judge denied a request to freeze the funds. So that means, for now, Stevens can continue to use that money to pay for TV ads for House members who support him as Speaker. That's topic for this segment of our Reporter Roundtable. With us still is Jesse Balmert from the USA Today Network Ohio Bureau, Jake Zuckerman from Cleveland.com, and ABC6 politics and investigative reporter Daryl Rowland. Jesse Balmert, this is just... The, the saga continues of this fighting in, in the Ohio House. And now, you know, we have a primary in a month and it's it's really pretty serious because this money is being spent to support certain candidates and not others. Yeah, correct. There's been a tremendous amount of infighting in the House Republicans in particular, in part tied to their last speaker's race, in part tied to a future speaker's race in 2025. And so this is really just like the financial outcome of that and who has access to the money that the campaign is spending to reelect incumbents. And um, I believe even the judge in this was like the smacks of like political gamesmanship essentially and it it's true i mean obviously the money is important to who gets elected in these particular races and who has the funds to get their message out but it is a big internal fight yeah you think that that 
the party would remain impartial when it comes to using money to elect Republicans. You, just, you want to elect Republicans to be Democrats, not elect Republicans to beat each other. But in, the, in our gerrymandered system here, that is the key to power. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you said it right there. And I, I think the God, I haven't paid too much attention to this. My recollection is that it turns on this issue of state losses. The head of the Republican caucus, House Republican caucus controls the funds. And, you know, right now you have a House speaker who became House Speaker because he got Democratic votes, so he had a minority of Republican votes, and the majority of House Republican votes voted for someone else who's not the House Speaker. But what kind of judge wants to just stick their neck out and get, you know, I'm going to jump on into someone else's fight here yeah. and sort this out? Yeah, I mean, it's really, it's a private matter in some ways. This is this is campaign money. It's, you know, publicly disclosed, but it's, it's private money. Well, this litigation was filed by, you know, Reps Derek Maron and Representative Plummer and others. For this very reason, um, they thought that Speaker Stevens, who was elected again with only Democrat, or I'm sorry, with Democratic support, he would not have won among just Republicans um, two years ago. So they f- went to court to try to stop this very thing from happening, and it turns yeah. out they they were right. You know, this is being this is party money being used in internal fights, um, which Democrats probably love. Um, you know, one thing it's incredible to me is some of these ads are. There's a woman named Gina Collinsworth. I don't even know her. Ninth district state representative candidate uh, came out and with a very emotional um, social media posting, calling on her opponent to take down an ad that showed her. Brace yourself for this. Wearing a mask. Oh, geez. And she goes on to explain. Well. I was. I didn't want to wear a mask. But my husband was in the hospital receiving chemotherapy, and it was his second battle with cancer. So I thought I really should wear a mask. So it's like, wow, is this really the the swing issue out in the the heartland or what here? Yeah, it's still. Pretty- so this is what. Yeah. So this is what the this money we're fighting over is being spent for. It's like, ah, oh, she wore a mask. She's obviously not qualified to serve in public life. Just shows you that that is still out there. That, and that, I'm sure that ad may have, must have been focus group tested and yeah. polled and things like sure. that. So, uh, so this this all leads up to next year's like about a year from now, a little less than a year from now, the vote over who's going to be the next speaker of the house. And presumably, Matt Huffman, who is now the president of the Senate, wins his house race, and he is thought to to be a a contender against Jason Stevens next year how does that play out how did where do democrats go do they vote for one or the other do republicans all go to matt huffman jesse do you think well i mean so we've had a couple speakers here in a row who've been elected with uh democratic support ideally you want to secure enough republican support that it doesn't really matter what the democrats are doing yeah. and that's certainly going to be the goal of matt huffman who is pursuing this position and perhaps of Jason Stevens, but a lot of his support hasn't really come together after that speaker's fight. And so we'll see what happens. But certainly the Democrats have played a key role in both the election of Stevens and previously the election of Larry Householder. And so they have a card to play in this game. Now, they did that the last time. What did they get for it? Jake, what did the Democrats get from supporting Jason Stevens? Oh, for Jason Stevens, I think that's more of a that's more of a seek. You know, there are a lot of allegations that there was a deal made. I, I don't think anything has ever really emerged that that backs that up. I think the Democrats at some point just had to pick one, 
And on an interpersonal level, Jason Stevens is just a nicer guy to spend time. You know, Derek Derek Merrigan has elbows. He likes to throw them. He likes to kind of throw bombs, as we've seen with this lawsuit we've been talking about. When, what sticks out to me is, like, there was this perception put out there that Jason Stevens is a quote-unquote moderate, and that's why real real Republicans should blo- should have backed Derek Merrin back in the day. But I think, like, everything we've seen in the last 18 months— absolutely undermines that there's there's no evidence that the ohio house is a is a moderate republican house they've passed transgender bans huge gun expansions uh the issue the august issue one you know i mean we've just seen some like really really radical policy coming out of the house i don't know how a reasonable person can look at this and say well that's that's some kind of moderate squishy speaker up there yeah Uh, but that's your qualifier reasonable person jake (laughs) and i will say they they haven't i'm sorry that's Oh, I will say a lot of this is palace intrigue, yes. but um, the way it impacts you and I is that the the lack of legislation that's getting done with all of this infighting, and Jake did a good story about how this was like the least productive year in legislative history last year, because when you don't have people who can kind of work together and like get enough votes to pass... It particularly like hard to deal with big issues in the state this is kind of the outcome yeah we saw we, we talked about it at the start there's been no ethics reform after the nuclear bailout uh, scandal no even you know there actually is a really good bill out there that the Derek Marin forces put out at the beginning now I think as time has kind of showed us this was more to just kind of sabotage or throw marbles under the the Stevens side and the, the quote-unquote blue 22 mm-hmm. that they talk about but, you know, we talk about Democrats, and they know they're not going to you know, get anything on abortion or anything like that, just like on their house order. But there hasn't been anything on the right-to-work front yes. or anything like that. And I know that was one of the biggies uh, with Democrats and, more important, with their labor allies the last time around. Don't know if that was what was on the table this time, but so far— we haven't seen a peep of any of that. Yeah, there has been, you know, as Jake mentioned, the transgender ban and things like that. But there has not been anything on on unions or labor restrictions. Well, I guess one thing I'd point out as far as a deal, I, don't, I wouldn't attribute this to any deal necessarily. But Democrats who have been voting against the speaker's priorities, but doing so because they just happen to oppose them and not as some sort of sabotage play. If you look at the capital budget or not the capital budget, the, the quasi capital budget the House just passed. The Democrats actually made out significantly better than the Derek Maron anti-Jason <laughs> Stevens aligned Republicans did. They all every single House Democrat got at least one big significant budget yep. project in their district. And a lot of the Derek Maron Republicans came home with zero dollars and zero cents. This is the so-called super duper fund. This is the one time money, 700 million dollars left over covid money, leftover money from the tax revenues during the pandemic. And they are. This is separate from the normal capital budget that pays for road projects and building projects around the state. This is basically one time, you know, life changing civic project money, they call it. Symphony's new hall, proposed hall down on the on the river is one of those projects. And um, but that's this isn't done deal yet. The Senate still has to come up with its half of the pie. Well, right. And they will probably. Well, who knows how this is all going to shake out because yeah. uh, it's very controversial. But yeah, that. Yeah, that happened, and Democrats obviously were in on the deal because their news releases came trotting out, I don't know, within about five minutes after yes. <laughs> after the vote. Yeah, Alison Russo, the, the minority leader, she had several, praising several projects that she had helped win approval of, at least yeah. in the House and things like that. 
I know it's surprising people want to talk about projects approved right before a primary, but you know. (laughs) <laughs> so they all get along there when it comes to spending money for the most part. And there's some, there's some spending con- our money. Controversial on the issue. Uh, President Biden uh, made it to eastern Ohio, far eastern Ohio last week. First time since the uh, Norfolk Southern train derailed and exploded and uh, polluted the air and the ground near East Palestine. Uh, Biden, it's been a year and he the signs from Trump supporters lining the roads of East Palestine said, too little, too late. Will Biden suffer any consequences by waiting this long? Did he, what do you make of the timing of his visit? And I'm not sure he has any any votes left to lose in Columbia County, to be honest with you. Um, it is, you know, it's a very good argument you can make too late. I don't know about too little. I mean, he did bring, I think, some something from the NIH along. But, you know, the feds were in there pretty expeditiously, which even, you know, state officials have ha- have confirmed and, you know, the EPA is working together and things like that. There was a fairly major federal presence in there. So I, you know, if I'd have been there, I would have asked people, what, so what are you saying uh, should have happened that did not? Or what, what do you mean by too late? Yeah. I mean, certainly there's value of, you know, the political rhetoric at the time was well if this had been in a democratic area or inner city whatever he'd have been there right away and it and the the timing was not good because he just made that secret trip to ukraine about the you know right after the derailment said oh he's going to ukraine became become to rural ohio yeah yeah it's definitely a photo op when a president shows up at a disaster area whether it be a natural disaster or you know the, the, the scene of a mass shooting or or a, or a train disaster or something like that but it does you know, politically and symbolically, it shows that the country is behind these folks. So there would have been some value in that. Yeah, I, I suppose there's value. I talked to some East Palestine residents just kind of catching up. It's been a year. What do you think? And a lot of, I mean, they have some pretty specific demands that I, I, they sound reasonable to me as someone who doesn't have a, you know, this toxic derailment in my backyard, but they want, they want their homes tested for air, you know, just are there dangerous chemicals in the air in my house? They cannot get that from the state or the federal government. They want to know that their health care costs are going to be covered for life as it relates to whatever kind of chemical exposure they may have suffered. They ha- No one has really promised or guaranteed them that. And the government's response is that Norfolk Southern did this. There are lawsuits. There's a potentially liable party here. Why should the government pay? So, I mean, I, I understand how we're here, but these these people have felt very neglected. This is an area, A, Joe Biden, like you said, doesn't have a lot of votes to lose, but there aren't even a lot of votes there. This isn't the political power center of Ohio. So it just it's just kind of another instance of kind of marginalized people already getting hosed again. There was some talk that he was there not to attract votes in Ohio, but to attract votes in Pennsylvania, which, of course, was right across the river. And they were also impacted by the by the derailment. Certainly. Air and, and he did stop at, a I think, a fire department just across the line there. Yeah. Rail safety legislation, Jesse, is. Is not moving down the tracks. It's out there, but it's stuck in the station to to take that metaphor to its its extreme. And JD Vance and Sherrod Brown are together on this one. They're not together on many things, but they are pushing this, and both are frustrated it hasn't gone anywhere. As is President Biden. Right. I mean, there's a benefit to having bipartisan support. I don't think there are issues that aren't really Republican or Democratic, and like rail safety and making sure that something like East Palestine doesn't happen again is something that people in theory can get behind, but there has been a lot of opposition. There's been some effort to make some changes at the state level as well, but they're a little hamstrung because of the federal regulations. So 
uh, we'll see if this like one year anniversary Biden's president gets anything moving, but it hasn't been. Yeah. Speaking of uh, possible contamination, the the Oil and Gas Land Management Commission meets later this month and they're looking at possibly making a final selection on the company, which will do the fracking under Salt Fork State Park. Um, But the bidders are being kept private. What's going on there, Jake? Yeah, I mean, I think you nailed it. There are an unspecified number of bids. They won't even tell us how many bids have been submitted, which that one really threw me. But what's their reasoning? It's in state law. It's their, their hands are oh, actually okay. tied. It says pretty clear. Uh, state law says all the information they can in- that they can release is where the drilling wants to happen, and I think who owns the specific acre. You know, not not very useful stuff for the public. But all the information will be released once a bid has been finalized. So hopefully they pick a good one. Um, but yeah, you know this this had a very acrimonious passage vote. I mean the the Oil and Gas Land Management Commission. You actually couldn't hear them cast the votes because there were about a hundred people in the room, just mm-hmm. stomping and hooting and hollering and and putting re- really clear opposition to this idea. And and we are moving forward. Yeah, and this this that's a pretty rich area for natural gas. So these companies are hoping to make some some money by drilling under that park. Now they won't be drilling in the park itself. They're outside and they drill underneath, sort of horizontally. Yeah, and you can see when you look at maps of this particular part of Ohio, you know, the parks really do stand out because you see kind of some of the the wells all around the area. And this is really another example, like Jake said, where like the state law is kind of in favor of the businesses, in favor of the companies and this going forward uh, with not a lot of access to the public. Now, the Department of Natural Resources did get a few limits put in on especially the Salt Fork uh, proposed sites. Um, don't mess up hunting seasons and lights and don't drive in the parks, yep. you know, go into your well pads and, and things like that. But it's kind of, dare, dare we say, scratching it at the surface. You will so see. You will see activity when you're heading to that state park, whether it's to just to visit the park. There will be activity in and around, not in the park, but around the park. The trucks. I mean, that's what that was a big shock to me is going out to gas country for the first time. You have so many trucks Bringing fresh it, fracking is a really water intensive operation, so you need a ton of water to be brought in unless they draw from the lake, and then you have this gross spent chemically brine that needs to be brought out or injected down into the ground. So it's it's really an industrial process that brings a lot of noise, a lot of yeah. noise and a lot of sight. Yeah. Well, when it, minute left, I gave you a warning. Do you guys have a favorite president, favorite Ohio president, perhaps? I, I should have told you this before we went on. Warren Harding, Warren. always fun. Oh, reading yes. la- reading his his love lo- love letters to put it generously. Yeah, I remember Fran DeWine was. They had a COVID thing up there, and she said one of Warren Harding's passions was chocolate chip cookies, and that was not his only passion. <laughs> <laughs> any other um, any other favorite, favorite presidents? Everyone goes to Abe. Sure, I mean I. When Archie Griffin was head of the Ohio State Alumni Association, he was a great president. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have yeah. a President Carter here at Ohio State University. Yeah. Not that President Carter. Anyway. Um, so thanks very much to our reporters for joining us here on this President's Day. I hope uh, folks are celebrating responsibly. Uh, thanks to Jesse Balmer from the USA Today Network Ohio Bureau, Jake Zuckerman from Cleveland.com, and Daryl Rowland. I'm Mike Thompson on 89.7 NPR News.